All right, let us begin. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today that we understand what it is you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. And it might be different from one person to the other because we all have a special walk with you and a special place in your plan of salvation. So help us to understand what our role is in your plan of salvation because we know that you expect something out of each of us uh, to complete that role. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. One of the things I want to start with is last Sunday's Mass, if you Recall the readings from the Mass last Sunday was all about love. The love of God for mankind. And, of course, the response of that love by mankind to God. Alright? I hope you kind of all at least remember the general theme. And it just so happens I went to church both Saturday evening and Sunday morning got the same sermon from the same priest, and it was it was good. I have no complaints uh, or criticism. But there was one major thing missing. It was all about how God loves us and makes exceptions for us in many ways. The one thing that was missing and is missing quite often from our understanding of what God's love is the flip side. Remember, there's always two things going here to make a balance. And the flip side of love is what? No, no, no. Not for God. God cannot hate. The flip side of love is justice. Remember, we cannot just expect to do anything we wish and have God continue to love us. That is what Isaiah is all about. And that's why I start with that kind of comparison. Because, as we have seen, God used the Assyrians to actually wipe out the northern kingdom because those people would not respond to God's love. So there has to be a justice here. You can't say that, and I've heard people say this, well, I don't believe anybody's going to go to hell. Everybody is going to go to heaven eventually. Well, would that be perfect justice? Why should people try to strive to be good people, good according to the teachings of, of God and the church, and then have people who do, who do just want any they, anything they wish, uh, regardless of how it affects God or other people, and they both get to uh, <coughs> heaven on equal basis, that wouldn't be justice. So we have to remember that the, res- the consequences of our life has to respond to the teachings 
of God and his church. And one of those major teachings is there are consequences to our not responding to God's love. That is justice. All right. Uh, Isaiah's whole message here, right from the very beginning, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 66, all three uh, parts of Isaiah, is equal justice. God is condemning the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but to a lesser degree, uh, because they are not striving to create a just society that will be a model society for the rest of the nations surrounding them, as well as themselves. And because the northern kingdom, after Hosea, and let's see, there was three or four involved, Hosea, Micah, and Amos. After those three prophets tried to get the people of the northern kingdom to change their minds, and the Deuteronomist, we can't forget those. We haven't talked really a lot about the Deuteronomists, but they were a small group of faithful people in the northern kingdom who developed the book of Deuteronomy. But that wasn't accepted by those people either. And so the book of Deuteronomy was brought to the southern kingdom by the same small group of people, and it wasn't accepted there either for a while, but it was taken <clears throat> to Babylon. And finally, finally, after, try, after trying to understand why they went, wound up in Babylon in the first place, they finally, through studying in these little synagogue uh, home groups, um, they finally learned that it was their own sinfulness that got them there in the first place and that they'd better do something about it or God will wipe them out like he did the northern kingdom. So perfect justice is something that we should all give some serious thought to. We do have to stand up and be accountable for our actions and our speech, and not only how it may affect other people, but how it responds to God's requirement and love for us. You know, God, yes, is perfect love. And that is something that we can always rely on. And we'll go through, and it's the lesson today, chapters 46 seven and eight, and we'll see examples of God's perfect love, how he carried the Jewish people from the time of their release from Egypt down through the ages for 1,500 years to the time of the Babylonian captivity. 
actually go, that goes from Abraham to the Babylonian captivity approximately 1,500 years, how he carried them through different major episodes and events and wars and famines and all other kinds of problems. He carried them, and yet they still would not respond to his love. And we here in the United States today are doing the same thing. And there will be a consequence for us. So we have to take this serious. And I think with Lent starting next Wednesday, you all got to come in here with dirty foreheads. Um, we have to give it some thought. And I think during Lent is a very ideal time to do that. Okay. Any questions on this situation? Now, so you're saying that if we don't obey God, we will receive God's justice. You bet. That's very simply put, but very, very accurate, yes. We can't do our own thing and expect to have God welcome us into the pearly gates. Uh, you know, there's got to be a balance there. That's one thing that perfection is all about. Divine perfection requires a balance throughout everything. Yes? What about them? Well, what serves them to participate in bad things all of their lives and suddenly they're going to die and say, oh my, I need to accept Jesus Christ now. What, what happens to If them? that's sincere, all right, now, uh, Diana's got a very good question here. What about the people who on their deathbed, and that happens a lot. That does happen a lot. People on their deathbed finally wake up to the fact that they're dying and they're going to be held accountable. They finally realize that, oh, you know, it just opens up uh, something new for them, or at least they're willing to admit it for the first time. Uh, what happens to them? Well, that opens the door to heaven eventually. But that's what purgatory is all about. All right? They have to spend uh, time there. According to, but remember, God takes your whole life into view and puts it in the scales to see how all of the things that you've done, good, bad, and indifferent, sort of weigh out. And it is the total that he looks at. Right? So that's the only answer I can give you because there's no way, you know, to answer it before except perhaps on a specific basis, all right? Yes, William? Well, it might have a basis as how human beings would look at it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how God looks at it. If you read the obituaries in the newspaper, they all look like they're saints. Oh, yeah. Joe was the loving father and husband and so forth, but I bet Joe, you know, had a few... A little uh, 
bad points in his life. Uh, so you got to be careful. We, you know, the person giving a eulogy to cover the life of the deceased, he's only going to get up there and say good things. All right? Um, or she's going to get up there and say good things. That's not how God might look at it. Excuse me. Yes. And what do they come to live again? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, uh, you mentioned the prodigal son. Remember that both sons were equally wrong, but in different ways. Right. The one was jealous and mad that he, that he was doing it out of like... That's right. Yeah. Like going to church every Yeah. In other words, he did the... He did. He did the right thing, but for the wrong reason. Yeah, and that's still wrong. Yes. Interesting that you bring up that. There's an excellent book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, and it's written by Henry Nowen. I recommend it highly because it brings out a lot of these same points. How both sons were wrong. The good one was obviously wrong as far as most people are concerned. I mean, the, the, the youngest son was completely wrong in many ways. But at least at the end, or towards the end, he finally got the message and returned begging forgiveness. Okay? Yeah. That's right. But uh, the other son, of course, resented even though he did nothing outwardly wrong, he resented every minute of it. And that was just as wrong. And even further, a point that isn't quite made clearly in that story is he really uh, dishonored his father by not coming in and joining into the celebration. Okay, That was a big no-no, particularly in that culture. So we have to be very, very careful. We can't make general decisions about people because that would be judging and it's not up to us. Okay, let's go on here. With chapter 46, I'm more inclined to stand over here. I just hope you can hear me down there. Chapter 46, you might say, well, now, we've heard this over and over and over through Isaiah 1 and now in 2nd Isaiah. This is not the first time we've heard this. But you have to remember that Isaiah, at this particular time, in the latter part of the 6th century B.C., had to go from place to place and repeat the same message. And that's part of what we're getting here. Okay. Remember there was no uh, uh, iPads and uh, all these other uh, electronic devices that we have today and instant communication, etc., etc. I want to go through this almost word for word because there's a lot of important things that I would like to point out. Bell bobs bows down and Nebo stoops. 
Bell and Nebo, this is at the top of page 125, chapter 46. Bell bows down and Nebo stoops. Bell was the god of uh, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians at the time. Nebo was his son, okay? Their idols set upon beasts and cattle. They must be borne upon shoulders, a load of weary animals. Now, what is God through the prophet is explaining to the people how unimportant, how inadequate the gods, the pagan gods of the Babylonians are here because they have to be carried around. They have to be given uh, space. They can't speak. They can't do anything, okay? Uh, if you go to Psalm, and I'll do this in a minute, Psalm 115, it really puts it in a better perspective. They must be borne upon shoulders, a load for weary animals. They stoop and bow down together, unable to deliver those who bear them up. They, uh, too, go into captivity along with everything else. Hear me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel. The word remnant here is important because it refers to a small group. Remember, we had talked about a thousand people or so, the Jewish population in Babylon. We don't have any idea of how many people. Uh, but my rough judgment would be uh, perhaps uh, a thousand on the lower level of the scale and maybe 5,000 on the greater that went to Babylon out of Israel in the first place. Okay. It says, my burden from the womb. In other words, he's calling the Israelite people, the Jewish people, a burden that he has carried from the womb, whom I have carried since birth. Even to your old age, I am he. Even when you your hair is gray, or you have no hair. <clears throat> I will carry you. <clears throat> I have done this, and I will lift you up. I will carry you to safety. He's promising again that he will take care of them. All right, But without having to say it, he's also saying that he expects something from them, and that is loyalty. To whom would you liken me as an equal, or compare me as though we were alike? There are those who pour out gold from a person and <coughs> weigh out. <coughs> Excuse me. It's all because you people are making me yell much. <coughs> There are those who pour out gold from a purse and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. They lift it to their shoulders and carry, carry the gods, that is. When they set it down, it stays and does not move from the place. They cry out to it, but it cannot answer. It delivers no one from distress. <clears throat> 
Remember this and be firm. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those long ago. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. At the beginning I declare the outcome, and from of old things not yet done, I say that my plan shall stand. And he's talking about his plan of salvation that we have mentioned several times. I accomplish every desire. In other words, I'm going to get my plan done whether you are with me or against me. Let me stop for just a moment and go to chapter, uh, to uh, Psalm 115. Now, the reason I do this is because Psalm 115 was a reflection on this very subject. Okay. It says, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name give the glory. Because of your kindness, because of your truth, why should the pagans say, where is your God? For our God is in heaven. Whatever he wills, he does. Their idols are silver and gold, the handiwork of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. They have noses, but smell not. They have hands, but feel not. They have feet, but walk not. They utter no sound from their throat, and their makers shall be like them, everyone that trusts in them. So this is another group of Jewish people reflecting back on this particular event mentioned in Isaiah. Okay. I won't go on because you can read that, the rest of it, at your, in your own time. Okay. Uh, at, uh, verse 11. I summon from the east a bird of prey. That is Cyrus. Okay. He's speaking of Cyrus, the, the Persian. And from a distant land, one to carry out my plan. Yes, I have spoken, and I will accomplish it. I have planned it, and I will do it. Listen to me, you faint-hearted. For from the victory of justice, okay. again, justice, I am bringing on that victory. It is not far off. My salvation shall not tarry. I will put salvation within Zion. Zion now is important because he's saying Zion or in or from Jerusalem, not necessarily from the Jewish people. He's making a distinction. Chapter 47 talks about something that is interesting because the Jewish people, even today, will not admit it. And that is the whole incident of their being uh, captives or exiles in Babylon. I'll go <laughs> explain some of that as we go along. <clears throat> 
Come down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground, dethroned, daughter of the Chaldeans. No longer shall you be called dainty and delicate. Remember, Babylon was a very famous, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You heard about the hanging gardens of Babylon. It was a glorious and beautiful city. It no longer exists except in ruins. And even there, very scattered ruins. Take the millstone and grind flour. Remove your veil. Strip off your skirt. Bury your legs. Cross through the streams. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your shame be seen. In other words, God is revealing some of the um, misdeeds, you might say, of the Babylonians. And remember, every uh, every country and every group of people that have harmed or imprisoned the Jewish people have received retribution from God. And in most cases, their empire or their major city has been destroyed. And that's true down through the ages. I will take vengeance and I will yield to no entreaty, says our Redeemer, whose name is the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. The words or the phrase, the Holy One of Israel, Isaiah is the only one in the Old Testament that uses that um, way to recognize God. Go into darkness and sit in silence, daughters of the Chaldean. Now, the Chaldeans were actually the people who established Babylon. Okay, To call them Babylonians is, is sort of a... Um, not a proper term. They should be called Chaldeans, but, uh, you know, we kind of use them uh, interchangeably. Okay. No longer shall you be called sovereign mistress of kingdoms. No, because Cyrus has now uh, conquered them. Angry at my people, I profane my heritage and gave them into your power. God is talking about now the Jewish people that because they were not faithful to him, that they put him, that he allowed them to be conquered and brought into Babylon for a short time. It says, and gave them into your power, but you showed them no mercy. Upon the age, you laid a very heavy yoke. You said, I shall remain always a sovereign mistress forever. You did not take these things to heart, but disregarded their outcome. In other words, you did not play fairly even with your conquered people. But hear this, voluptuous one, enthroned securely, saying in your heart, I and no one else, I shall never be a widow, bereft of my children. This is a sort of a mocking way that he says Babylon Babylon is talking about its accomplishments. Both these things shall come to you suddenly in a single day, complete bereavement and widowhood, 
would have been, shall come upon you, despite your many sorceries, and the full power of your spells. Secure in your wickedness, you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I and no one else, but upon you shall come an evil you will not be able to charm away. And in many ways, those things continue. People do things in the dark and feel that God cannot see them. And unfortunately, they are very much misguided. All right, this is still uh, God speaking through the prophet to the people, the Chaldeans, you might say, or the Babylonians. Upon you shall fall a disaster you cannot ward off. Upon you shall suddenly come a ruin you cannot imagine. Keep on with your spells and your many sorceries, at which you toil from your youth. Perhaps you can prevail. Perhaps you can strike terror. You wore yourself out with so many consultations. Let the astrologers stand forth to save you. Let the stargazers who forecast at each new moon what would happen to you. See, they are like stubble. Fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the spreading flames. There is no warming ember, no fire to sit before. Thus do your wizards serve you, with whom you have toiled. From your youth they wander, they, <coughs> they wander their separate ways with none to save you. That is a put down of the people and the leaders of the Babylonians who imprisoned without mercy well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration because we know that the people that they conquered and brought to Babylon from Israel were given some degrees of freedom. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't all bad. Uh, and I think, again, that reflects God's protection of them protection of his people because in order to continue the furtherance of his plan of salvation he needed he needed at least an element or a remnant of the Jewish people to return to Israel and bring back what they had learned through the prophet Ezekiel from the book of Deuteronomy and that is the law the teachings of Moses uh, as it was known down through the ages. Now, if you read Deuteronomy, which I think is a, one of the best books of the Old Testament, much of that which is in there is uh, given credit to, the, to uh, Moses. Well, you can tell that Moses didn't write all of that stuff because a lot of it was not in existence at the time of Moses. A lot of what is said in the book of Deuteronomy came down through the Jewish people, but in the long period of time after Moses. All right. Now, between the time of Moses and the Babylonian captivity, there's almost a thousand years. 
So, a lot has happened in and with the Jewish people uh, that was incorporated into the book of Deuteronomy as if it had come from Moses. Because the, the culture of that time would not accept it if it was not assigned to somebody of importance. And that is why they used Moses. The Deuteronomist who wrote it in about the, let's see, about the 8th century B.C. in the northern kingdom did it to dispute and try to correct the leadership of the northern kingdom, which was going far astray into paganism, uh, to return to the teachings of Moses. Uh, and, of course, like I said, they would have no part of it. All right. But, um, finally, when it got to Babylon, through the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel, that is, um, people finally, a small group finally took uh, sincere interest in this. And when they left Babylon to go back to Israel, they resolved that they were going to live by the teachings of Moses. And that is that is both good and bad in a way. The good part is they finally got the message of why they were there in Babylon in the first place and they were going to resolve to be different. But unfortunately the bad side is they went too far in the opposite direction. And their whole religious beliefs became tied to observing the rules of the law and they forgot that God was there to protect them and wanted a personal relationship with them to establish uh, a model community again in Jerusalem and Judah, which would then be a light to all the nations. And we'll see that in chapter 49, where that is brought out rather clearly. Unfortunately, the Jewish people still go in that direction of observing the law rather than worshiping God in a personal way. Yes. Question on the bottom in the comments on page one twenty eight, the bottom paragraph. Yeah. It says something about Rome and Babylon. Yes. And then it says that uh, Babylon became a center of Jewish religion. Well, yes. While they were there, as I've said before, what did they do when in their spare time? They established these small synagogues, and what did they study in those synagogues? Because a synagogue is a house of prayer and study. So what did they study? They studied the book of Deuteronomy and the writings of the prophet Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And so that's where the whole idea of center of study really started. Okay. 
But in that same paragraph on the bottom of page 128, it talks about uh, this whole idea of the put-down of Babylon is also mentioned in the book of Revelation. And it's also mentioned throughout the book of Daniel. So it's important because it has become sort of a symbol of repression okay, of the Jewish people. And it is used in many ways. Um, there's a uh, modern Broadway show some years ago called Kismet. Uh, it incorporates a lot of these ideas. And there is uh, a song within that that is called Babylon. And it is, it's funny in a way, but it's a beautiful song. The music itself is rather well done. The whole story is well done. It's more of a sort of an Arabian Nights thing, you know. It's kind of nice, but it incorporates some of these ideas. Let's go to chapter 48. Hear this house of Jacob, called by the name Israel. Remember, Jacob and Jacob's name was changed to Israel. This goes way back to the book of Genesis. But over a period of time, the land that Jacob inherited from Abraham, etc., by good graces of God, became known as Israel. And it's a little difficult sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament and to certain parts of the New Testament as to whether they're talking about the individual or they're talking about the country. Okay, So you have to kind of be careful. In most cases, they're talking about the country of Israel or the nation of Israel, not the individual. Okay. Hear this house of Jacob called by the name Israel, sprung from the stock of Judah. You who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel without sincerity, without justice, though you are named after the holy city and rely on the God of Israel, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Things of the past I declared long ago. They went forth from my mouth. I announced them. And then suddenly I took action and they came to be. In other words, God is God. And whatever he wants to do, he will. And in many cases, he has predicted through the various uh, partners or people that he has used down through the ages, particularly the prophets, about certain things. And then they come to be. What he's doing is comparing himself to some of the pagan gods that we talked about in the previous chapter who are just uh, images and they cannot and do not have any power. Because I know that you are stubborn and that your neck is an iron sinew, 
or muscle. And <laughs> how many of you called your children uh, muscle head or something of that kind? You know? That's exactly what he's saying here. You got muscled in that brain and nothing else. All right. Uh, so I have to chuckle sometimes because God has a sense of humor. And sometimes it comes out in scripture and people don't catch it. Uh, I'm going to just go over that again. Because I know that you are stubborn and your neck, your neck is an iron sinew or muscle and your forehead is bronze. I declared them to be of old before they took place. I informed you. That you might not say, my idol did that, or my idol did this. My statue, my molten image commanded them. Now, God is saying that I did it for you from of old. Now that you have heard, look at all this. Must you not admit it? From now on, I announce new things to you, hidden events you never knew. Now, not from of old, they are created. Before today, you did not hear of them, so that you cannot claim, I have known them. You never heard. You never knew. <clears throat> they never reached your ears before. Now, I'm going to give you a little advance information. What he's really talking about here is the coming actual release of the Israelites from Babylon to return to Jerusalem. Okay. Yes, I know you are utterly treacherous. A rebel you were named from the womb. For the sake of my name, I restrain my anger. For the sake of my renown, I hold it back from you, lest I destroy you. See, I refined you, but not like silver. I tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my sake, for my own sake, I do this. Why should my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? Listen to me, Jacob. Listen, Israel, whom I called. It is I, I who am the first and I am the last. Remember this was repeated uh, or, or mentioned earlier in I think it was chapter 45. Yes, my hand laid the foundations of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they stand forth at once. All of you assemble and listen. Who among you declared these things? The one the Lord loves shall do this, do his will against Babylon and the offspring of Chaldea. I myself have spoken, I have summoned him, and I have brought him, and his way succeeds. And he's talking about Cyrus here, okay? Now, Cyrus is saying, the next few words here, Come near me and hear this from the beginning. I did not speak in secret. At the time it happens, I am here. Now the Lord God has sent me, Cyrus, and his spirit. 
the things that were to be revealed are the fact that no other conqueror has released his conquered people to go back to their homeland. Okay? And that is important because it is a first in history. And God is saying that he alone accomplished this for his purposes, not for theirs. But they are enjoying the benefit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, teaching you how to prevail, leading you on the way you should go. If only you would attend to my commandments, your peace would be like a river, your vindication like the waves of the sea, your descendants like the sand of offspring, or your loins like its grains. That's uh, just like Psalm 81. Just hold that thought for a minute. And I'll read the essence of Psalm 81 to you. I'm not going to read it all, but I read the, the major part. It says, An unfamiliar speech I heard. I relieved my shoulder, I relieved his shoulder, meaning Israel, from the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I rescued you. Unseen I answered you in thunder. I tested you at the waters of Mirabah. Hear my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, would you not hear me? There shall be no strange God among you nor shall you worship an alien god. For it is I, the Lord, am your God, who led you from the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. But my people heard not my voice, and Israel obeyed me not. And so I gave them up in the hardness of their heart. They walked according to their own counsels. But if only my people would hear me, If only Israel would walk in my ways, quickly I would humble their enemies against their foes. I would turn my hand. Those who hated the Lord shall seek to flatter me, but their faith would endure forever. While Israel I would feed with the best of wheat and with honey from the rock I would feed them. There again is an example of justice. Down at the bottom of page 130, in the commentary, I'd like to read this and and talk about it a little bit. It says, there is no great act of God without a predictive word to clarify its significance. Judah thinks that it knows who God is and how God acts. 
It will deny the divine origin of anything that is contrary to its concept of God. And there is, therein is the problem that Judah is continuing to face. Anything that he doesn't like, even if it comes from God, it ignores. And we can't do that. God is going to get his way regardless because it is for the benefit of all mankind. Uh, Let me read that again. It, the meaning, the Jewish people, Israel, will deny the divine origin of anything that is contrary to its concept of God and the biases connected with it Of course, this is to be expected since Israel was rebellious from its very beginning. But the Lord is not governed by the conduct of Israel. Whether God judges or saves, the motivation is within God's inner being. That is, God's name. God does not respond to emotional impulse like human beings. That goes back to William, to what you were saying earlier about a nice eulogy about uh, a not-so-nice person. The Lord works will proceed no matter what the population reaction is. Very important statement. And if you go down to the bottom of that page, 131, It says, Israel's future is linked to obedience to the authoritative word of the prophet because it comes from God. Using a series of imperatives in verses 20 and 21, the prophet summons Israel to action. Oh, wait, I'm sorry, I I just skipped a line. Verses 20 and 21, the prophet calls for a new exodus and a new passage through the desert. A new exodus that would be out of Babylon, but a new passage through the desert, the desert of life in general. The desert here is not just the desert between Babylon and Israel, but the desert of all of life's problems. All right, let's continue. Thus says, I'm at verse 17 here. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, teaching you how to prevail, leading you on the way you should go. If only you would attend to my commandments, your peace would be like a river, your vindication like the waves of the sea your descendants like the sand, the offspring of your loins like its grains. Their name never cut off or blotted out of my presence. Now, that's a big and glorious uh, goal, you might say. Uh, And you might say that the prophet got a little carried away here with some of that. But God, the, the idea is good. The fact that God offers these people so much 
if only they would follow him and follow him according really to his way of thinking and what the prophet has been trying to teach them. All right, now in verse 20, we get finally an indication here of their release. Go forth from Babylon, free from Chaldea, with shouts of joy, declare this, announce it, make it known to the ends of the earth. The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through dry lands. Water from the rock he set flowing for them. He, they, he cleft the rock and waters welled forth. Well, actually what he's doing here is saying that remember what happened to the Israelites at the time of Moses when they were short of food and water he provided it for them and he will do the same uh, for the for the Jewish people fleeing from Babylon. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. And of course, that's where we get the phrase, there's no rest for the wicked, uh, which we often use today as a modern cliche. Any questions? Well, aren't you all excited? You want to go on to the next chapter, I think? Or are you, you're bored? Just, just. You have said that um, uh, Cyrus was the first to release captives he had conquered. He didn't conquer them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did. You're, you're true. That's true. But they were conquered people under his control. And he was the first one to do that. Inspired by God for whatever reason to repopulate Jerusalem. Right. Right. And that is why the prophet is making a big deal out of that. Look at this as something new that is going on. And why. That's what he's trying to get them to do is to see why. Of course, as you just mentioned, it's to repopulate and carry on God's plan of salvation. That's right. Chet, you had a question? Yeah, it's sort of related to this. Um, and striking the rock and water come from it. Where does Israel or Jerusalem right now get their water from? Because it looks like a big rock. Where does it There's no mountains? Yeah. Sea of, sea, of, sea of, yeah, the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. Well, pumped up, just like we get it from, uh, no, no, no. As we get it from Folsom Lake, uh, here, they get it from Lake, uh, the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. Well, so does the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. From the mountains in Lebanon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, the other thing too is that uh, Cyrus let them go, but he also gave them treasure to rebuild Jerusalem. Yes. That had to be the first. That is definitely the first. But as you'll read further on, he actually did the same for the 
the, Jew, the Jewish people once, I mean the Babylonians, once he conquered them. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a big first. Yeah. Very important. Yes. No. No, they, treat, they treated the God of Israel as if it was just another God. You see, and Karen's point is, is important. Each of the nations around, you know, not only, not only the, the Babylon, Babylonians, but the Assyrians and all of the other little nations, they all had their own little gods. Uh, and so when Babylon, uh, under Nebuchadnezzar captured Judah, it just recognized their God, the God of Israel, as just another God. Yeah. Unfortunately, they didn't give him any preference because he wasn't any better, according to their thinking, than their God. Yeah. But they were the only ones who didn't have um, a thing. I mean, they didn't have a gold image or an image of anything. They, they only had the voice. You mean the Jews? The Jews. Yes. 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 They had the idea of the one true God who appeared to Moses and that was carried down through the ages. That's right. Nothing symbolic as far as... um, Well, there was nothing material. material. Yeah. Yeah. There was nothing material uh, at hand that they could put their hands on. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is called faith. And they had faith. That's right. Whereas the others had to have something in their hands, but as Isaiah is pointing out, even though they had an image in their hands, it couldn't do them any good, or bad, or indifferent. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, that's true. Yeah. What William is saying here is that some people look at us no differently than the ancient Babylonians or Babylonians uh, because we have images such as crucifixes and uh, statues and rosaries and those kinds of things. The difference is we know that those are material objects and they in themselves can do us no good. Or at least that is the way we should look at it. Um, And as long as we recognize that a rosary, uh, which I have in here, uh, or a medal or a crucifix that you have on, in itself can do you no good. But it reminds you of something in the life of God or in the life of our faith. That is what you use it for. If you use a statue and pray to the statue expecting the statue to do you some good, that is definitely wrong. That's right. Yeah, It's in remembrance or reverence. Uh, it's to help you remind, be reminded of God or some incident in the life of God or Mary or, or whatever. Uh, and that's the only reason that you use those things. Okay, It's really no different than having a photograph of your mother sitting on the 
the piano, so to speak. Um, and you go by and you say, well, hi, Mother, pray for me, or whatever. You don't expect that to be carried out directly, you see. Uh, it's a remembrance. And you go back to when your mother was present, or, you know, whoever. to remind us of that in, 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 in regard with this statue, we're not praying to the statue, we're asking this representative, or that's a representative of the saint that we're asking to intercede for us through Jesus. Yes, yes. It's the whole idea of intercession. You're praying to somebody you know, that you feel strongly that is in heaven, or the church has said that person is in heaven. To intercede. Remember, God is the only one that can work miracles. Human beings cannot work miracles. But through the intercession of God, or through the intercession of human beings, I'm thinking right now of Sylvanus Casey, who lived in our time, uh, and is, has, is been being given credit for uh, many, many miracles, but he would be the last person to say that he worked miracles. It is through his intercession that miracles happen. Yeah. Now, if your prayer is directed to God with the proper frame of mind, okay, the proper intention, yes, then it makes no difference what your religion is, God's going to hear you. So, uh, we got to keep certain things in mind. Okay. But the whole idea of this lesson here today, I think, is the idea of balance between perfect justice versus perfect love. You cannot expect God uh, to just accept you as you are uh, if your mind and heart is not in tune with him. Because he, being the one and only God, is going to get his way one way or the other. All right. Yes, sir. Yes. Oh, all right. So, yes, the, the gentleman is talking about the incident in the desert at the time of the Jews wandering in the desert after being released from Egypt. And they are overcome by snakes. And God prays to, I mean, Moses prays to God asking for some form of remedy. remedy. And God says, make uh, a bronze snake and mounted on a pole and whenever the individual looks at it with faith they will be cured or protected okay the whole idea there is it is not the snake that is doing the miracle 
Alright? It is God and the relationship of the individual and faith. Of course, what this is, is, uh, you might say, a preview of God himself in the form of Jesus Christ being nailed to the cross. Okay? And that's what it was supposed to represent. The whole idea of Christ being nailed to the cross. Alright? And through are looking at a crucifix and asking for forgiveness. That's the whole purpose there. All right. Any other questions? Yes. The last one for today. If you love someone very much, and the other person does not love you, the way that you love the person, how do you unlove that person? You don't. You don't unlove anybody. Alright? You have to swallow it, unfortunately. The question is, if you are, if you love somebody who does not love you or return your love, how do you unlove? That was the question. How do you unlove? And the thing is, you don't. It is wrong to try to unlove something. I've never actually heard that word used, but, uh, it is very descriptive, I'm sure. Okay. But you don't and you cannot unlove. Love, that, or they call it requited love, all right, is love that is not accepted by a human being, is certainly honored by God if you carry it out. You continue to love the person uh, even though you know that they are not uh, in love with you. Okay. I want to talk about Lent coming up next week. Next Wednesday. And I want to talk about it in conjunction with our modern day idols. We read a great deal in the Bible about various pagan gods, pagan idols. All right, same word or same meaning, pagan gods or pagan idols, same meaning. But do we have such things today? Hmm? Do we have such things today? You don't see people carrying around little images, uh, at least it's very rare to see anybody carry around little images, although uh, cults and so forth still exist, and we're aware that they do use with uh, images of some kind, Ouija boards and that kind of thing. But we do have idols that a lot of people don't think about. The fact that our modern day um, mobile devices are almost becoming uh, an idol. People are so involved with iPads and smartphones and all of those various things under different names uh, are becoming far more important uh, than virtually anything else. I know of a particular case where a, a young man is so involved with the computer and his various uh, mobile devices that he has almost stopped, he has totally stopped working he has given up 
all his other responsibilities in order to focus on the computer. He even uh, is um, failing to sleep properly, uh, failing to eat. Uh, you know, it's becoming an obsession uh, to the point of extreme. Now, that's a rare thing. But how many people I've seen, I saw a woman actually walk into a, a bench here because she was so involved with what was going on uh, in her iPad or whatever it was uh, that she walked right into this bench and, you know, unfortunately. But that is a constant thing that is happening, Karen. Being so infatuated with TV and Hollywood personalities uh, that you go to extremes. Uh, when you see personalities show up at a given venue of some kind, and you have all of these people screaming and yelling and so forth, would they do the same thing if God was standing up there? You know, if Christ was on the altar and we announced that he was going to be there, how many of these same people would come? Uh, you see, that's what our modern-day idols are all about. Uh, we have more sports in the same way. Sports are very good for the body, for the mind, for the soul. But you've got to have a proper balance, a proper appreciation. And if they go out of order, if you uh, say, I'd rather go to a ball game than go to worship God on Sunday, then you are totally out of line. God expects a certain amount of attention. Because how can you then, if you don't give God any attention, how can you call upon him and ask for some favor or prayer? Um, what about all of these food programs that are on television? Some people are so infatuated uh, that they, I've heard of somebody that uh, tapes virtually all the food programs so that they could watch them uh, at their convenience. Well, if they watched every one of them, they wouldn't have time to do anything else, you know, because there are so many on television these days. Uh, the same with clothes. And the more important one of getting your own way. Getting your own way regardless of what God may have in mind for you. We should constantly be praying to try to better understand what God expects of each of us on a personal basis. Because there is something that each one of us is expected to give to God. The old saying that I use quite often is that your very life is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift to him. And that is something that should resonate in your mind, in your heart. What can I give to God? What is he really expecting me to give to him? And I think when we go through Lent, uh, 
where our us more, let's say, mature people, we don't have to do a lot of fasting, and there's other things that we don't have to do. But that doesn't mean we can just sail through Lent and not do anything. The other thing is, it used to be a very common thing, particularly when we were children, that we were told to give up something, you know, candy, gum, um, television, whatever. I'm so old that when I was young, there wasn't any television, you know. But I would rather say, don't focus on the negative, that is, the giving up of something. Do something that is positive, that will remind you what Lent is all about, and that will help you and someone else. I can't tell you what those things might be, because each of you will have your own ideas. But whatever it is that you choose to do as a Lenten reminder, and I hate to use the word Lenten penance, because everybody thinks, oh, woe is me, you know, I have to do penance. Well, yes, you do, but it doesn't have to be something that is painful or whatever. It is something that is to remind you of what Lent is all about. The coming of Christ and the death, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, particularly the passion of Christ on the cross. That is what it should be reminding you of. And what is your relationship to Christ so that as you focus on his life and death, how is your life united with him? And that's what suffering is all about. We wonder why, why should good people suffer? Well, that's a mystery. But the secret is to unite your suffering, regardless of what it might be, with that of Christ. And then offer that up to him. My mother, my mother used to say when I was a kid, would have a problem, and I'd run to her and say, oh, I got a problem. And she'd say, now offer it up. That wasn't what I wanted to hear, you know. <laughs> but over the years, I began to realize how intelligent, how smart or clever my mother was. You know, there was six kids in the family, and if she sat down with each one of them and tried to solve their problems for them, she wouldn't get anything done. But she was a very intelligent woman. Okay? Offer it up. Well, like I said, that wasn't what we wanted to hear at the time, but it did make sense later. Okay? So, again, Lent is a time not to offer things up or go without, but it is to do something that is positive, that will help you, that will honor God, and perhaps help someone else. Any questions? Well, you're out of questions there, young man. Any other questions? All right, we'll let William say one more. Noah's Ark? Yeah, son of God. Yeah, well, Son of God, 
Yes. That's a, that's a movie written and directed by the husband of uh, um, Downey, yeah, um, who is a Catholic, and hopefully it will be done well. I'd have no idea of the quality uh, or how it relates to Catholic teaching, but I would say that it's worthwhile looking at. But I'm always a little bit suspect of most Hollywood uh, depictions of biblical events, okay? Because they either uh, take a little bit of license on certain theological issues, or they create more questions than they answer. All right. If there's no other questions, let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you whenever we can be with you because we know that where two or more are gathered in prayer and in study for the purpose of truly trying to understand, you will be there with the Holy Spirit and bringing that to us. So we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing as we go forward, particularly with the season of Lent, to help each of us find some particular thing to do um, to help us remind ourselves of what Lent is all about. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.